Hey, it's great to be with you guys. Yeah, the, the brave, the bold, the ones that uh, stepped out in the snow and the storm, and here we are. <clears throat> and for our friends online, of course, we want to uh, thank you for being safe and and whether you're quarantining or what may be happening. How many of you guys had COVID in the last couple of weeks? Uh, yeah, wow. Wow, look at that. Yeah, okay, so, yeah, me too. I was one of them. Uh, in fact, I feel like, I feel like, like, I know this is not even close to the first week of school, but in some ways it kind of feels like that, doesn't it? Like, we have all been, like, so quarantined from each other for so long. L Lindsay, my wife, got COVID the first day of school, so we immediately had to, like, take our kids out of school and quarantine, and we tried to even quarantine her from the rest of the kids and me and everything, but then, of course, a few days later, as she starts to feel better, then I'm like, what's going on? Uh, sure enough, I've got it now. And so we've been kind of in this process of quarantining and all this kind of stuff as well. And so it's just, it feels so nice to actually uh, be together and, and spend this time uh, just worshiping the Lord and focusing our hearts and our minds on all the things that so often distract and keep us from centering our lives on the Lord. And, and so here we are, we're... we're looking into this series this semester. We're actually starting tonight on a series uh, in Daniel. J Daniel chapter 1 is where we're going to be tonight. Um, and I want to just encourage you guys, we're going to be going through this through the semester, and Daniel is an incredible book. So, so read through Daniel with us. Like, you know, spend the next, you know, few weeks or month and just, and just go through it. I, I'd encourage you, like, read a chapter a day in the Bible, like spend some time. I, I realized years ago that consistency is more valuable than intensity, right? Like everybody that went to the gym over last month because it was New Year's and they're going to like, you know, resolve to actually get in shape and really make this happen and get fit this year. And they go to the gym for an hour and a half and they're like doing everything and they're sweating buckets and they're like crawling out of the gym at the end of the day. And they're like, oh, it hurt so good. And then the next day it just it hurt. And then the next day, they're like, I'm not doing that again, right? Like this intensity. Now, intensity and consistency is this deeply powerful thing. But if you're going to choose one or the other, do start where you can do it consistently. And if that's like a chapter a day, okay, great. Start there. Like I found when I was a kid, I started actually doing that. Before I go to bed, I just I couldn't even go to bed until I had had time and just read a chapter a day. It doesn't take more than a couple minutes. But I found I had read through the Bible long before any of my friends had even ever even thought about trying to do that. But it was just that like consistent rhythm, and then I could start to kind of expand that and work from that. And so, hey, if you're if you're new to the Bible, if you're new to like the spiritual disciplines, like start there. Read with us through Daniel this this semester, and, and we're going to do it once, one chapter a week, but you can do like a chapter a day and start from there and keep going. But we're going to be in Daniel chapter 1 tonight, and it really kind of has it all. Like this, this story is just jam-packed with all kinds of fascinating stuff uh, about theology and our belief and who God is and how do we deal with suffering and the, you know, prophetic uh, the second half of the, of the book is, is really kind of like the power of prayer and spiritual warfare. Uh, the first half of the book is all these really fascinating stories about Daniel and his friends and how they learned to follow after God 
in a world that is not following after God. And so really tethers to who we are and where we're at as a society, as a culture, as, as a community uh, right now here at CSU. And so uh, we're going to go through, and we're just going to start tonight in Daniel chapter 1. So you can read with me. Um, but Daniel chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of, king of Judah. Now Judah is, is basically the southern province of Israel. The nation had split at one point. And so this is, this is really the southern kingdom, but this is like the main power right now. This is where Jerusalem is. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Now I think we may even have a map up there. Um, at this point in history... There's kind of three superpowers in the world. And, and there's Babylon, and there's Assyria, and then there's Egypt. And the Babylonians have just come through and just devastated Assyria. And they want to take over Egypt, too. But the problem is, is in between where they are and Egypt, they have to get through Israel. And so here comes Nebuchadnezzar, and he shows up to Jerusalem. And he besieges, besieges it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put the treasure house, uh, the treasure house of his God. So what's going on here? Now, we don't really catch this. It's just like, oh, like the temple was like a storage facility for, you know, random articles or things. No, there is, in the ancient Middle East um, and the Fertile Crescent area that we're talking, this idea of when you conquered another people, it wasn't just that you were conquering, uh, like one government conquering another or one military conquering another military. It was one god defeating another god. And, and so this is really the Babylonians' idea of saying, we're stronger than your God. Our gods are stronger than your God. And to prove it, we're taking stuff out of your temple and we're putting it in our temple. And, and so really, if you have to think about it from the Jewish perspective, this is a crisis. This is an existential crisis. This is a, is God really the God of the universe? Is, is Yahweh really more powerful than the God's? Of the, of, of the Babylonians. And, and here they are. They're in this kind of existential crisis in this moment. Like, who is God? And what does it mean that he let the nation of Israel be defeated by the Babylonians? All right. Then, verse 3, the king ordered Ashpenaz, I'm sure I destroyed that, chief of his court officials, some of you, if you're reading your, your Bibles, different translations may say the chief of the eunuchs, which is really the same thing. The most literal translation would have been chief of the eunuchs, which meant the chief of the officials. Um, that doesn't really translate the same to us today, so uh, some translations exclude that. It might be relevant just to kind of highlight some things. When Daniel and his friends are brought into uh, Babylon, They've experienced incredible devastation, right? Their entire country has been destroyed. Their families may or may not be alive. They've been taken away from their very culture, likely never to return. Um, and, and the context in this situation actually suggests that they, they may have actually been 
they may have become eunuchs themselves. Right, so they've been physically assaulted. Right, they're, they're being trained by the chief of the eunuchs, the chief uh, of the court, to work in the court in the Babylonian temp, uh, you know, society. That would have been a eunuch role. So, so most likely they've even been experienced uh, incredible suffering and devastation and, and sorrow. You know, all that this is going on. And yet, here are these young men. And we're going to see that they have this incredible faith and this dependence on God. To bring into the king's service, continuing verse 3, some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. These were the elite of society. Um, They were kind of the best of the best and the future leaders of Israel if it hadn't been destroyed. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. All right, so, so they, they have this opportunity. I mean, despite the fact that they have just been devastated, they have this hope. And Nebuchadnezzar, in really a really horrendous sort of way, but is, is kind of a genius because he recognizes that it's not enough to destroy the government or the capitals of these civilizations. If he's going to rule over the world, he needs to find a way to, to bring these different people groups into his society, to, to bring them into Babylonian ways. And really, beyond, before anyone was really ever thinking this profoundly or this systematically, Nebuchadnezzar recognized, if I can take the elite, the young, the ones who are not yet really like going to be really against me, and I can indoctrinate them into the Babylonian way, I can begin to create a bridge and, for these different societies, and, and they're all going to serve me. So as long as they bow to me, I don't, I don't really care what their background is, right? And so he starts to bring them in, and it has to be really tempting, right? These young men, they've been devastated. In most situations, they very likely could have been killed, but they've been given an option at the, at the capital of probably the greatest city in the world at that moment to become somebody, They're giving the opportunity to become someone of power and prestige and position and influence and all, you know, of wealth even. Like, they're given this opportunity. And so there's this this incredible pressure. But if they don't conform, if they don't bow, if they don't do a good job, they likely would die. And so there's this incredible pressure that they're finding themselves in this moment. Now... Verse 5, the king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. But all they're going to have to do is is compromise here. Verse 6, among those who were chosen were, were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. Now, uh, there's this uh, pastor in, in Portland, uh, John Mark Colmer. He's becoming kind of a prolific writer. Some of you guys really have heard him, like him. Uh, he makes a comment about Daniel 1 that, that they, these young men were really going through kind of four uh, systematic uh, forms of indoctrination. And so they were, one, they were isolated Two, they were enculturated, right? Here, give up your culture. This is ours, right? They were two, integrated, right? So we're going to bring you into 
into our way of thinking and teaching, right? The, the training was largely a training in how to be Babylonian, right? So yeah, that's your background. Being a Jew is your background. Being an Israelite is your heritage. But this is who you are now, right? So they're in, integrated. And then they're identified in identification, right? So they're completely changed even in their identification. And, and so there's this devastating indoctrination thing that kind of happens here because they're, they're being pressured into, into walking away from everything they've known and they're following after Yahweh and their service to their God uh, for the sake of a future that they could have and a recognition of what would happen if they don't submit and surrender. Verse 8, But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief officials for permission not to defile himself this way. Now, there's some debate kind of why this was a crisis moment. Like, why did Daniel think of this as being like a, a moment of compromise? Uh, the main two ideas, and it doesn't really matter. Either case, uh, the point is the same. But it may have been that the food um, was not kosher. Uh, and so it would have been breaking of the Levitical law. It would, have, it would have been breaking from what God had directed Israel to do in act of, of separation and service to Yahweh. Um, it could have also been that this meat that was offered to them uh, was, was sacrificed to the Babylonian gods. Um, and so it could have, could have just been an, a symbol of service and surrender uh, of their belief in Yahweh to worship uh, these other gods. And maybe it was both. Maybe it was a little bit of, of both of those things. But in either case, Daniel saw this moment as a moment of, of tension in his faith, in his life. He saw this as a moment where he had to make a decision of what he was going to live for and how he was going to live. And he resolved in his heart to follow God. Verse 9, now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I am afraid for my lord the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Right? So there, there's, real, there's a real cost here. There's a real, there's, I mean, this guy's life is on the line. Right? And so here's Daniel, and he's, he's like, okay. Let's, let's come up with a strategy here that makes sense to both of us. Verse 11, Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young man who eats the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. Right? This is not... This is not a biblical argument for veganism uh, or, sorry, you vegetarians. I mean, you know, it's, it's not a bad thing. This is not like a biblical diet strategy for you. Like, but this is just saying, this is just saying, hey, this is the way that we can actually like honor the situation that we find ourselves in, uh, honor this guy whose life is on the line for us, and yet still follow Yahweh. And, and there is this creativity and kind of innovation, I think, that is really fascinating in Daniel. He's, he's always looking uh, not to be offensive for offense's sake, right? But, but looking for a way to not compromise in the midst of it, too. So at verse 15, he says, At the end of the ten days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guards took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. You know, I think 
this story is so fascinating to me because I think so often Daniel's struggle is the struggle that, that so many of us wrestle with uh, in our culture, in our worlds. Right, we, are, we find ourselves so often, I mean, all the research, all the studies, all the discourse, it says, you know, we are easily in a post-Christian culture, which largely says there, there had been seasons, not that, that America was ever Christian, but that there were certainly seasons where the idea of Christianity was kind of pervasive. Everybody kind of knew about it. There was a sense of acceptance culturally of Christianity. But we've moved past that into a post-Christian environment that largely sees faith and Christianity in particular as, in many ways, the enemy to society's advance and to, you know, unshackling ourselves from the morality and the antiquated ideas of the past and moving into our great destiny, that Christianity is somehow the enemy to that. And so here we sometimes find ourselves like Daniel in these situations where we have this question, how are we going to live? And what does it mean? Are we going to be people who compromise or people of conviction? Are we people who live faith based on the convenience, right? And so often a lot of us kind of had a moment to have a kind of a litmus test, right? Christmas break is a great litmus test. Do you love God? Are you following him? Or, or is your faith more, a little more immature at that point? Right, like, do you ever spend time with God when your when your small group leader wasn't like encouraging you or getting up at seven a.m. to do it with you? Like, were you were, did you seek His face? Did you long to experience His presence, or were you more distracted by by all the things that come our way with with the holidays and not bad things even, but just things that got in the way of seeking after God? Right? Do we want to be people of of conviction? or convenience, of faith that is compromised, or faith that finds its resolution and its profound impact in our lives. And I think we all long for that if we are followers of Jesus. And I know, you know a lot of people maybe aren't even there yet, so they're just trying to figure out what they even think about following after God. But for those of us who say, hey, I want to follow God, we don't make that commitment with the idea of like, oh, I just want to live a watered-down life. Uh, watered-down faith is my goal. You know, I want to live a compromised faith. That's my agenda, right? We want something more. We want to strive after something greater. We want our life to have significance. And we read stories like Daniel, and we're like, I want to have that kind of faith. And I think Daniel tells us a lot about what does it look like to actually be realistic about what does that look like and how do we go about that. And so we're going to go through that this semester. But a few things that I just want to highlight tonight, and, and one of them the main thing, the main idea that I just want to hit on tonight is this idea in verse 8. The whole passage re- kind of revolves around that, that verse 8. And it's where he said that Daniel resolved. What does it mean to be a person of resolution in your faith? Oh, thanks, sweetie. That's my wifey. <clears throat> well, I sound like a frog in my throat. Just got a raspy voice. Okay, so, okay, so, so when he says that word "resolved," um, the first time that word was actually used in Scripture um, was actually in the Genesis story, where God said that He placed Adam and Eve in the garden. Um, it's the same word, which sounds kind of funny. Like, how are those two connected? It's this idea of like, for better or for worse, right? Like Jesus was like. 
doing this in the garden. God was doing this in the garden, knowing what it was going to mean for him or what it could mean for him, right? For better or for worse, whatever happens, I'm, it's already done. There's no going back. There's no changing this. We're going there. We're creating Adam and Eve. We're putting them in this garden, and we're going to see what they decide, right? There is this resolution that there's no going back. And, and some, of yours, uh, some of your translations may say, in his heart, uh, which actually is there. Now, in the NIV, they didn't put in his heart. They, they saw resolved as really kind of encapsulating the whole idea. But in the ancient Hebrew, it would have said in his heart, which was this idea of like in his innermost being, in the essence of who he is, in the ethos of Daniel, he had decided, this is it. There's no going back. It's done. This is my life now. And so what does it look like to live a life and a faith that's resolved in his heart to follow after God. And just a couple of things tonight. Uh, one of them is that an attribute of a heart that is saying, God, I've resolved to follow you, to not compromise, is one that, whose life is marked by an ultimate concern. Um, Angela Duckworth, in her seminal book on grit, passion, and, and uh, purpose, uh, makes this comment that in the research they're finding that a sense of grittiness is more powerful, more significant to how much of an impact your life will have than any sense of talent. Um, that talent is fine, but it doesn't get you half as far as a sense of grittiness to anything. And so when asked, okay, well, how do we then live gritty? One of the key factors, one of the key aspects of, of someone whose life is resolved, is resilient, is, is kind of gritty, if you will, is someone who has what they just call uh, ultimate concern. Now, an ultimate concern means kind of two things. It means that in the hierarchy of desires or priorities in your life, there is, there is one that rises to the surface. Of all the other things that you want in life, all the other ambitions you have, all the other goals that you have, that there is one thing that is at the top. And two, here's the second thing, that all the other priorities in some way serve that ultimate concern. And, and here's, here's the delineation. Because oftentimes we can say as followers of Jesus, on the, on the test, right? On, on the test of our hearts. Oh, God is my ultimate concern, my highest concern. And, we, and we'll say that. But what does that mean? And, and oftentimes, if there are other competing things in my life, I might say, okay, God is my ultimate concern, but the, all these other things in the moment feel more pressing, Right, like, okay, God's my ultimate concern, but I don't really need to have time with him today. I've got, I've got midterms. That's, that's the priority, right? Like, oh, God's my ultimate concern, but, but um, you know, I just want to, I just want to have some fun. I'm in college, right? Can I just have fun? I don't want to have any real responsibility to fight for that guy or that girl in my life, right? Like, you might say that ultimate concern, but if there are other competing things then those things oftentimes will water down both the ultimate concern and the thing that you're talking about, the competing agenda. And, and so what they say is actually greedy people, one, have an ultimate concern, but two, everything else serves that. And that 
that thing then becomes the North Star that really helps them focus their life. Because, you know, it's easy to say, okay, you know, if, I know that I'm not supposed to, like, you know, sleep with my girlfriend or get wasted this weekend or, you know, okay, these, these clear things. I get that. But it's, it's the other agendas that I have. And they're good things. The greatest enemy to holiness in our lives are good things that get in our way. It's, it's the good things. Daniel's given an opportunity. It's a good thing. Hey, have a future. Be an influencer. Your whole nation needs influencers in this power struggle that we're in. We are in a tough place. You're our hope, right? This is a good thing. But, but what is the ultimate concern of his life? And, and so, you know, are you going to school? And it's like, hey, you know, I'm studying and, and, you know, I'm not going to spend time with the Lord because I really need to study. And this is a good thing. God gave me this blessing. I'm supposed to go to school. Yeah, it's a good thing. But is it getting in the way? Or for other people, it's the opposite. It's like, oh, I love hanging out with people. Like, you know, I could be a witness because I'm like hanging out for 70 hours a week with my small group. And it's like, you need to go to the library, right? <laughs> you need to study. You won't be part of this community next semester because you're failing all of your classes, Right? It's not one or the other, but that ultimate concern keeps, the North, keeps your life focused. What is the concern? I want that A plus so bad. But you know what? Have you hung out with your, your small group this weekend? They're doing some stuff. And man, that, that guy, you could really fight for him. Right? Like you could really like, you know, he needs a friend right now. Right? Like is that A plus that important? Maybe not. Maybe not. But at the same time, you need to be, you know, hey, Daniel had influence in his life because he was responsible with the responsibilities he was given, the opportunities he was given. So there's this, there's, it's not an either or. It's this balance that is only focused if you have that ultimate concern that keeps you focused. And those things, because they serve. And the greatest enemy I find so often for, for Christian young people is the good things in their life that aren't surrendered to the ultimate concern of their life. And they're good things. And so they give, so they justify them in their hearts. Oh, it's a good thing, so I don't have to surrender it, not recognizing that everything. So this is the second point. The second idea is that, that people of resilience are people whose lives are marked by sacrifice. People of resilience are people whose life, you always sacrifice for your ultimate concern. And so here we read Daniel, and, and he's, I mean, at this point, he's like maybe 15, right? And he's making these like resolutions in his heart that would last for the rest of his life. If someone was reading your life, if someone was reading the story of your life to this day, would they conclude, like we conclude from Daniel's life, that your life is one of conviction? Because if there is not sacrifice, for God and his kingdom, then they would not say that your life is marked by that ultimate concern. Daniel's life was marked by constant and continuous sacrifice. And you can look at the story and be like, yeah, but God blessed him. Yeah, but he didn't know that. I mean, he, he took a risk, but he didn't know what was going to happen. Right? Like there's a story that we're going to get to later with with the other three when they, they're in the fiery furnace and they say, yeah, God can save us. But even if he doesn't, we don't really know, but even if he doesn't, we're not changing our mind. We're not bowing, 
right? There is this resolution no matter what happens, right? And so how is your life marked by sacrifice? And, and oftentimes we think of sacrifice as a signpost of what's in our life, right? Oh, my life is not uh, very resilient because I don't have sacrifice. Well, you know how you make your life resilient? Sacrifice. If you want to claim a sense of resilience in your faith, then you need to step out in sacrifice. It's not just a signpost of what's there. It is the engine of getting you there. Does that make sense? And so in our faith, we need to be a people who can step out and surrender and sacrifice in our hearts and our lives for that ultimate concern. Because we always sacrifice for what's greater. And if something is not greater, then we don't sacrifice for it. And so your life can easily be marked by saying, would someone reading your life conclude that your ultimate concern is God? And they would know that by the sacrifices and the choices you've made. How have you treated the choices and the opportunities and the options in your life? And if it's not there, then they wouldn't say that following God is your ultimate concern. You may, they may say that other things are your ultimate concern because you sacrifice God for that. But what is it that you sacrifice for? Thirdly, model um, modeling life of, of resilience is is shown by gambling on God. Gambling on God. There's this guy, CT Studs. Love him. You guys have been around. You've probably heard me use this example, but I just I just always have to go back to it because it's always kind of stuck in my heart. And C.T. Studd was this cricket player back when cricket was, like, a big thing and, and in, in Europe. Uh, different parts of the world <laughs> challenged my Indian friends. Yes, praise God. I, I love it. But, but when England, when cricket was a big thing in England, C.T. Studd was, like, the leading athlete. I mean, he was just basically the leading athlete of his time. Take whatever sport is popular at this point in history or this culture. But he was a leading athlete of his time. He actually gave it up in the middle of his career in order to go be a missionary. So his life was marked by sacrifice. And, and years later, there was somebody who interviewed him and said, hey, what was it like becoming a follower of Jesus? And he said, well, I gave up a lot of vices in my life, um, but I kept one. And the interviewer was like, oh, that's interesting. Well, which one? And he said, well, I kept gambling. Um, oh, well, you know, walk me through that a little bit. And he said, well, I, I changed what I gambled on, um, but I like, I like gambling, so I kept gambling. But I just changed what I gambled on. And I used to gamble on, like, horses or craps tables or things. Uh, he said, now I just gamble on God. Um, he said, I put myself in situations that I know I can't handle, and I gamble that God will show up. And that's a really fascinating idea. Here's Daniel, and he doesn't really know what's going to happen, but he steps out. He's like, you know what? Test, test me on this. Ten days. I know your life is on the line. My life is on the line. But I'm not going to compromise. I'm going to gamble if I step out, that God will step in and meet me in that place. And when, is, when has your life gambled on God? When have you taken faith steps? Maybe that's 
as simple as talking with somebody about the Lord, or maybe it's as simple as like sacrificing or serving for someone else, or maybe it's, maybe it's taking that step you feel like the Lord is saying and you're just not really sure, you know, missions trip or, you know, LTC, or maybe something just more pragmatic that is in your situation with that, that person that you're just kind of scared to even, you know, step into their life. But, but you know, what, in what ways are, is your life gambling on God? And when do you find your situations there? Daniel's life was resolved, and we could see that because it was a life that constantly was gambling on God. All right, lastly, your identity is from God, not the world. Right? So here's Babylon, and they're like, hey, we're going to, like, indoctrinate you, and so we're just going to change your name. Daniel, Daniel means Elohim in my, is my judge, God, Yahweh. God is my judge. And yet the Babylonians, they changed it to Belteshazzar, which means Bel's prince. And Bel was the principal god of Babylon. Right? It was basically saying, hey, God was your judge, but now this is your prince. This is your king. This is your lord. Right? This Babylonian god is now your lord. What's, actually, if you read all of, all of uh, these four guys, they changed all of their names to try to highlight the, the god's of Babylon in contrast to their names that highlighted the God of, of Israel. And, and Daniel's, it's really interesting, Daniel was argued to have written uh, Daniel, right? It, it seems most likely that he wrote it. Uh, and yet, he never calls himself Belteshazzar. So throughout the book, he always refers to himself as Daniel. Uh, and, and not only that, really kind of a really funny, interesting little side bit um, the other names, the, the Babylonian names are often misspelled. Um, now, Daniel would have clearly, I mean, his whole training, his whole f- career uh, was, was in this. He would have been very fluent uh, by the time he written, written Daniel. He knew how to write his own Babylonian name. But he still, he misspells it. And in fact, uh, historians at first thought it was like a mistake. Like some scribe at some point later didn't know how to write Babylonian names and so but no, actually, they have so many documents now. They're like, no, he actually wrote them intentionally wrong. He, it was like he was like, oh, that name? Oh, that's not even, that's, whatever. I don't even care about that. I, that's not me. That's not who I am, right? Like, how do you spell that thing? I don't even know anymore, right? Like, it was not who he was. Because to him, he was, a, he was concerned about God as his judge, not the Babylonians as his judge. And he held on to that identity, and that resolution, that resolve in his faith came from saying, I'm not going to let the world define me. I'm going to let God define me. And I'm going to step into that. Worship team, you guys can come up and we're going to kind of close here. But I love, I love this example of Daniel because in this story, we're going to see Daniel is, is always kind of front and center in the book. But, but there's these other three guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they um, seem, it seems like this. We're kind of reading in between the lines. But it seems as if Daniel set the tone for the rest of them. Right? It's always kind of Daniel unto himself and then the three of them. And they're all friends. They all have this interconnection. And yet the three are always kind of together and there's Daniel. Daniel was the one who set the tone. And, and here's just, just a question for you, like, is, is your life one 
that is, that is marking the lives of others. I guarantee you, your life is marking the life of the people around you. But in what way? What way is that? You know, C.S. Lewis would say, we're always either pushing people closer to heaven or to hell. We've never met a mere mortal. Your life is constantly pushing one or the other. And, and there's this idea, there's what's, what's called hard power. Sometimes I think sociologists kind of highlighted this idea. There's hard power, which is kind of like Babylon coming into Israel at the sword, service or die. But then there's a lot of soft power. And soft power is where we live more often. It's this idea that if, if I just, you're a college student, you're supposed to drink too much. It's no big deal, right? You, well, you kind of love her, right? Or I mean, you guys are, I mean, you've been dating for a little while. I mean, it's no big deal, right? Like you're supposed to sow your wild oats, like, right? Like there's just, there's this idea there's this sense within the environment that just says, it's okay. Why make a big deal of it? Just go with the flow. And you know, peer pressure is not, a, it's not necessarily a bad thing, right? Like we were made to always push each other. We were, you know, iron sharpens iron. We were always made to, to, to influence each other. The question is, is our influence influencing each other towards the things that we aspire to or pulling us away from the things that we have resolved in our hearts? And, and that's why we need community, but we need permission giving. And I know, I mean, in college for me, I was, I was on a football team, I was in a frat. Like, I, I saw both ways. I had friends who loved Jesus, came in, into my fraternity, said, oh, we're going to be permission giving for the kingdom. We're gonna give an example of following Jesus. But guess what, it was the other way around. And the world influenced them. And then there were some of us that were, that were in those environments that, that were able to, to be influencers towards God, for God. And, and I'll be honest, I think, I've been telling people even middle and end of last semester, I was talking like, I, I think I've, I don't say this lightly and we'll get into like this idea a little bit later this semester, but like spiritual warfare, I feel like I've, felt and sensed and seen and experienced more spiritual warfare in, the, in this school year than I, I've ever actually experienced in, in my career as a minister. Um, and, and it's not, you know, for Daniel, we're going to see it's, there's clearly a spiritual reality that's playing itself out in his life. And it's a cultural pressure. It's not one or the other. There's the, the two are working together. And in your guys' generation, you guys are in a place where you guys have to make some decisions. Are you going to influence the world around you or are you going to let the world influence you? Are you going to live the good life by the way that Jesus defines that or by the way the world defines that? Because a lot of things are going to have to be sacrificed on either side of that answer. But how are you going to resolve in your heart? And what are you going to resolve in your because make no mistake, you're on a battlefield for your life. And your heart is on the line. And your destiny, as we'll see with Daniel, your destiny is on the line. So as we start this semester, we're kind of getting into it. I just want to take a little bit of time. We're going to go into worship. And I just want to invite you guys, you know, in this moment, in this space, to step out. And whatever that means. Step out by raising, you know, Follow the psalmist's example, raising my hands and surrender and worship to God. Or step out and just in, you know, 
come over to the sides, go in the front and bow. Step out in some way, but step out and see how the Lord will step in to that, into that action. But, but let's just take a moment. We're not, you know, we don't have a lot of time here, but we just want to take this moment and say, God, we're surrendering. You're our ultimate concern. Whatever I need to sacrifice, how do I need to step out? How do I need to trust you? Because I need to take hold of that identity because you are my ultimate concern in life. As we go into worship, let's not just sing the songs that are before us, but may they become, as Daniel, in the inner of his heart, in the inner of his being, the resolution of my mind and my life.